Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Summer's here, I can tell. All right, a little sleepy. Let's go. Matthew chapter 18, if you have a Bible, is where we will be this morning. And as you're finding Matthew chapter 18, if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to use one of the Bibles in the rack in front of you. In fact, you can keep that Bible if you don't have a Bible. Let that be our gift to you. And if you're not used to looking up passages of Scripture, you can find Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20, which is will be our text this morning on page 644 or 823. I'd love for you to not be uh, dependent on the screen, but for you to actually have the Bible open on your lap and for you to follow along. I think that's a great way for you to become more familiar with your Bible, which would be great for your soul. As you're finding that, let me just give you uh, a bit of an orientation of where we are today and what's going to happen in the next few weeks. As you know, if you've been around Crosspoint for a while, We finished up a long series through Genesis, and if you're visiting, you should know that that is our general custom. 95% of the time, we just work through books of the Bible, and in a couple weeks, we're going to start a trek for the rest of the summer through the New Testament letter of 1 Thessalonians. But in between Genesis and 1 Thessalonians, we're taking the opportunity to just do a few standalone messages on some issues that we think as pastors would be helpful to the church. And so this morning, we're going to look at this passage of Scripture where Jesus gives us very clear instructions on how we should handle sin and friction and and offense within the church. Then the next two weeks, as Springer mentioned, I'll be in Uganda, and please do pray for that. He mentioned that we'll be doing a pastor's conference Uh, The pastor that we work with, Pastor Raphael, has about 30 pastors from around the area that are coming that, uh, Lord willing, I'll have the opportunity to spend some time pouring into, speaking about what it means to uh, preach good theology and to think about the responsibilities of pastoring. And so pray that that is a a real profitable time. Uh, And the ladies on our team are going to be pouring into the ladies as well. And so please do pray for, for us as we're away. So the guys, the other guys will be preaching these next couple weeks, standalone messages, probably out of Psalms. And then June 21st, we'll pick up and, and work through 1 Thessalonians. But this morning, we're going to work through a passage of Scripture that I think is just really vital in the life of a local church. And here's, here's what I want you to see today, the purpose behind today. I, I want you to get a, a feel for the purpose and the responsibility that we have collectively together as a local church to be Christians in community, to live in such a countercultural way that by the way we actually do life together as a local church, through the way we take sin and pursuing Christ earnestly, seriously, that by the way we actually live together, that becomes a means by which God uses to display the glory of the gospel to an onlooking world. And so by the way, we actually disciple one another or discipline one another even. That actually becomes an evangelistic aroma to an onlooking world. And I think that's the way God has clearly intended it. And I think we as a church need to see these things clearly this morning. So 22 years ago, 
in May of 1993, I came to Fort Benning as a young soldier. Shortly thereafter, I met a young lady. And shortly thereafter, uh, I convinced her that I was the one. And so uh, I knew she was the one, certainly. And I remember that I spent, wouldn't get, you know, just a young soldier, not making much money. I drained my bank account down to having only $100 left to buy an engagement ring. Drained it. I'm not saying that's the wisest financial move in the world, young men, but it, it, it worked out well for me. And I drained my bank account to buy a ring. Now, I can remember going to the jeweler. Nobody, when they go, no young man that's buying an engagement ring is interested in the prongs that hold up the diamond, right? You're, you're looking at the diamond, not the prongs. What we want to look at is the beauty of the stone, of the diamond, not the little things that are holding it up. Well, in like manner, the church is to be like the prongs that hold up the gospel. In fact, in, there's a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that says that the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. I think that that means, in a way, we are like the prongs on a ring. Who cares about the prongs, man? So why are we here? Is it, is it for us? Is it for you to get a good teaching so that you can shuffle along and have a good Monday through Friday? Is it for us to sing songs that we like? Is it for us to have a, a sort of social, you know, um, uh, network of people by, by which we find our needs met? Oh, all of the th- those things may happen, friends. But, but God intends for our gathering together as a local church to be like prongs on a wedding ring that hold up the beautiful diamond that the world needs to see. Nobody says, oh my, what nice prongs you have. They want to look at the diamond. And when people look at a local church, they need to see the diamond of the gospel. And by how we live together, God intends to display that gospel and that diamond. So what we're going to do is we're going to parachute down into Matthew chapter 18. But before we do that, and I read 15 through 20, let me give you a little context. Matthew chapter 18 is all about life in the kingdom. This is a discourse of Jesus to his disciples. Matthew is really broken down into these these discourses, and this is one of his discourses where he is teaching them about life in the kingdom. So Matthew chapter 18 starts off by Jesus speaking about humility. He says, don't try and be the greatest. Be the least. Be like a little child and be humble and receive children. In fact, any of you that causes one another or these little children to sin, it would be like, it it would be better for them if we tied a stone around their neck and threw them into the lake. So that's how how critical Jesus says that humbling ourselves to, to one another is and not causing each other to stumble. And he says, when we do, when we are tempted to sin, we should make war against that sin. In fact, he says that if your hand or your foot or your eye causes you to stumble, it would be better for you to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye and go lame into the kingdom of heaven than to, than to have that hand or that eye and sin. Jesus is telling them how, how, how serious they should take their collective life together. And then, right before our text, he speaks about the parable of the lost sheep. And we love this text, don't we? It's this story that many of us know where it says that there's this shepherd that has this flock of sheep and and the 99 are with him and one strays. And the heart of this shepherd is like the heart of our Father God who will go after that one straying sheep. And we all love that text. But then right after that, 
is this text that we will read about how God brings people back from sin and destruction. And it is this life together of how we should handle sin together. So let's read. Let me pray, and then we'll read Matthew 18, 15 through, through 20. Well, Father, as we, as we come to your word, I pray that we collectively together, as your church, as people that are trusting in Christ in this room, that we would see the deeper, more beautiful, corporate, global, eternal purpose of being a church, just a local church, connected with local churches all across this world, that together we are here for something so much greater than just ourselves, but we are here to collectively live in such a way that displays to the world the surpassing beauty of what it means to follow Jesus, who, who alone can satisfy and I pray for my friends that are in this room who have not yet trusted in Christ, that even as we talk about this, this sort of family discussion, that you, by your kind and sovereign mercy, would take their hearts of stone and that you would give them eyes to see and a heart to believe and ears to hear the beautiful words of life that only Jesus can satisfy and that Jesus alone has laid down his life to bear the punishment that should have been ours. And Jesus alone rose in victory over death in the grave and now offers life for all that will turn away from trusting in themselves and trust in him. God, I pray that my friends who have not heard that message and responded to that message today, that you would give them eyes to see that message and that they would respond. And Lord, make us, I pray that you would just move us several degrees closer to being conformed to the image of Christ today. For your glory and our joy, I pray these things. Amen. All right, let's read Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 20. And then we're going to read and we're going to work our way through it and look at three truths that I think this text shows us and then three implications from, from these truths. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So by that, Jesus is saying, treat them as if they're unbelievers. Put them out of the church. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Okay, so here Jesus lays down clear instructions and gives us really three, at least three steps on how we are to deal with sin and offense within the context of the local church. So three truths that I think are clear from this short passage. One is that Christians in a local church, we love one another by taking sin 
seriously. We care for one another. We love one another by taking sin seriously. This has been referred to in the history of the church as as discipline, as church discipline. In fact, this passage is about how the church should discipline uh, people that are sinning or wayward or walking away from the Lord. And church discipline or the, the act of Christian discipline to one another really historically takes two forms. One, there's, there's formative discipline and then there's corrective discipline. So we really should be disciplining each other. In fact, the, the root word there is disciple. We should be discipling one another and disciplining one another formatively all the time as a local church, as we're in community together. So formative discipline would be really what we're doing here. We're opening up God's Word, and one of us is instructing and helping th- through the Holy Spirit's work, through God's Word, to form Christ-likeness in us. As two Christians uh, gather together for fellowship, maybe an older one imparting wisdom and God's Word to a younger one, that is God helping to form christ from one, in one Christian through the encouragement of another. That should happen all the time, all throughout the week in the life of a healthy local church. But here what's in view is this corrective discipline when, when there's something that needs to be dealt with. So Mark Dever, a pastor that we respect very highly, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., wrote a very helpful book called Deliberate Church. And he distinguishes between formative and corrective discipline as kind of like formative discipline would be like eating right, exercising, eating your vegetables, right? And by the way, I said about getting engaged to Jennifer 22 years ago, and she's out of town taking our two younger ones to camp. And so there will be this afternoon for lunch, no eating right in the Evangelista home. I'll tell you that much right now. Me and the two older ones, I mean, it's cake for lunch. But formative discipline is, is, you know, exercising, eating right, just the regular disciplines of the Christian life. Whereas corrective discipline is kind of like surgery where we need to remove some tumor or cancer lest it it destroy our souls. And Jesus gives a, a clear process. In fact, he gives at least three steps for how this should be done. So we see that there in verses 15, 16, and 17. The first step is to go to the individual if there is some sin or offense. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If they listen to you, you've gained your brother. Step number two, if that doesn't work, is that you're to take two or three witnesses. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So there's, there's, a, there's an increasing level of number of people involved depending on whether or not there's repentance or reconciliation, right? And notice here that, th- that Jesus is writing this, he's, he's, he's saying this, and it's being written to just everyday Christians, that the responsibility to do this doesn't just, just rest in with church leadership, but in interpersonal relationships between uh, people that are, are members of the church. So step number one is go to the individual. Step number two, take two or three witnesses. And then verse 17 tells us step number three, that if that doesn't work, if he refuses to listen to them, the witnesses, 
tell it to the whole church. And that word church there is really one of the only two times in the whole Gospel of Matthew that that word church is used. We'll read the other one in just a moment in Matthew chapter 16. But it's this word ecclesia that means the assembly. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful and clear argument for the idea of the local church. This verse is impossible. He's, Jesus, in this context, is not talking about the worldwide church of all those who are trusting in Christ. Because that would be impossible for us to gather together as all believers everywhere to tell it. But implicit in this is the context of a group of people who are gathering together and submitting themselves to one another as a local church. And so he says, tell it to the church. Now, these are just minimum steps. Obviously, I think there's wisdom involved in involving the elders of the church to tell it to the church should it ever get to this process. And we could say more about that. But I just want you to see this clear process that Jesus outlines for everyday, ordinary Christians in a local church like us, our collective responsibility towards one another to really promote our individual holiness and sanctification. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh my gosh, this is one of those, you know, I mean, this is one of those holier than thou type of things. Is this church going to be like everybody's sort of watching each other like, oh, I know what you did last night. Or like you got people like positioned, you know, at uh, bad intersections. There's one light right there on veterans. It just, it, 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 even nobody's around and it doesn't turn green, you know. And cross points positioning people there to see who runs red lights. Or, hey, brother, I saw you cut somebody off in traffic the other day. And I think you and I need to have a little discussion. Now, friends, it, it, we're not talking about every offense. I mean, come on. If we, if we confronted each other about every sin in our lives we would exhaust one another having difficult conversations, wouldn't we? So we're not talking about every single thing that we may do. Friends, we, we are full of sin. Our lives are full of less than optimal sanctification. <laughs> Friends, we're not talking about every offense. In fact, Peter says that it is, it's the grace of God that covers a multitude of sins. In Proverbs, it talks about being concealing a matter is, 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 is much wisdom. But what I think is going on here is that when there is an offense or there is a situation between two people that creates a state of just not being able to be reconciled or in harmony, that's when certainly uh, these conversations should happen. Or if you know a person who is in danger of shipwrecking their soul, not because they just were grumpy one day, but because they are involved in a, in a particularly egregious uh, sin that if they continue to give themselves over to that, uh, they, they will bring, uh, they will bring r- really uh, a bad reputation on, on the church and on the witness of the gospel and could potentially hinder their own soul. Listen, friends, we're not talking about uh, having a church full of people who, who never sin. That would be impossible, right? But I'm encouraged, and I remember William Arnaud, the British theologian in the 1800s, this quote that I, I, I quote a lot, and he says, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin, meaning the non-Christian, and the other does not, meaning the Christian. He says, that's not the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that the Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded sin with the help of the community around them. 
and the non-Christian, maybe even in self-deception, thinking that they're a Christian but not still loving sin more than Jesus, is taking sin side against a dreaded God. And so we want to be people that help one another with each other's blind spots to love one another by taking sin seriously. We'll talk a little bit more in just a few minutes about how we do that. So we love one another by taking sin seriously too. I want us to notice here that the goal of this interaction is repentance and a restored relationship with God and his people. So that's the second truth that we see there. The goal is repentance and a restored relationship with God and his people because what God is doing is he is forming a people. In fact, friends, I was thinking about this this week as I was looking at this text. What we're seeing here in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 is just a microscope, just a microcosm of exactly what we looked at for months in Genesis. Remember how we looked at in Genesis that God is taking a jacked up group of people and he's making a family out of them and he's making them holy. And why is he making them holy? So that they can be a little holy huddle that just gets mad at people and, you know, just lobs grenades at the world around them and just is angry. No, he's making this family through through Abraham, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, so that through them, he will bless all the nations of the earth. And how does he do that? He makes this family, and he purifies them, and he makes them holy, so that the way they live together becomes a display of the beauty and the surpassing worth of Jesus to an onlooking world who's caught up in their idols right? And that's what is going on here in the New Testament. Then we see that mission of God continuing with the church. God has now making a people, not just Jews, but Jews, Gentiles, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord, and he is purifying them, making them more like Jesus so that through this group of people as they live together in a way, the world will not be be repelled by their sort of judgmentalism and, you know, just grumpy fundamentalism, but that the world, as they look at the church, will be compelled by the beauty and the surpassing worth of the God that they worship and live for. So do you see the connection there? And that's the goal, is that we would be restored so that collectively we can do that better as the world watches us live. And then thirdly, we see... And I want you to see this. This is, this is so important. That Jesus has given the keys of the kingdom to members of the local church. So what do I mean by that? That's, that's some interesting language there. I realize it may be unfamiliar to you. So in Matthew chapter 18, we read this text where Jesus says that the church has this authority uh, to put somebody out if they don't uh, repent of their sin. And then you re- we read there in verse 18 of our text, Matthew 18. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So what, what does that mean? Well, let's, to explain that, let's go two chapters over to Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is speaking with his disciples. And this is a famous passage where Peter one of his closest disciples, becomes the, really one of the first leaders of the church in the book of Acts, has this, really this aha, divine moment where God reveals to him who Jesus is and he makes this great confession. So in Matthew chapter 16, 
starting in verse 13. Listen to these words. And we're going to, here's the question we're, we're really trying to get at here is what does it mean that Jesus has given this authority or the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose to the local church? So Matthew 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And by the way, I mean, it's hard to even read that without, I mean, I could preach it. Friends, that is the question. Let me go off topic a little bit here, a little rabbit trail. If you're not, if you, if you're not yet trusting in Christ, if you're not sure who Jesus is, friends, that question is being asked of you today by God's Holy Spirit. Who is Jesus? That's the most important thing that you need to know. Who is Christ? Christ is the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, the God-man, Christ Jesus, who is pre-existent, co-glorified with the Father, God himself in the flesh. He, in the fullness of time, came and took on the likeness of sinful flesh, Romans 8 tells us. And while we were sinners and separated from God because of our sin, Jesus, truly God, fully God, God forever, took on the likeness of sinful flesh, but yet without sin, lived a perfect life in complete obedience to the Father's justice and holiness, and then laid down his perfect human and yet fully God life on the cross. And because he is completely eternally holy, he had enough holiness in his humanity to absorb the wrath that should have been ours. And then he didn't stay dead in the grave, but he rose again in victory over the grave, sin, death, and all of its consequences, and now is alive and now commands all people everywhere to turn from trusting in themselves and to follow him and to to love him and to love his way, which is far more satisfying than any broken idol. Friends, that's who Jesus is. That's the message of the Bible. That's the number one question that every soul must answer. But I digress. Back to the text. (laughs) And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah are one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjon, or just Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, knowing and seeing who Jesus is is not just a matter of figuring out facts and compiling them together, but it is an act of God's sovereign mercy to give us eyes, to give us eyes. In fact, we pray that every Sunday as we gather. Lord, for those that are in this room that are gathering with us that have not yet seen Jesus, we're not asking that God would give us wise words to coax them into some sort of logical argument, although God certainly uses means. But we are pleading with God that he would bring life to people who are dead. That he, by his grace, would give the knowledge of who Jesus is. And so he says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now listen to verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now verse 19, listen to this. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
That's the same language. In fact, verse 19 is really verbatim to what then Jesus says to the whole church there, where he says that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, and whatever you loose shall be loosed. So Jesus initially starts with Peter, and he gives Peter this authority. He says it's the keys of the kingdom. And then he expands that authority in our text in Matthew chapter 18, not just to Peter, but to the church. So what does that mean to have this key to bind or to loose? Now, if you spend any time watching TBN or some false prosperity gospel, you, you may potentially see this wrongly. And sometimes this is very wrongly taught by people as a sort of like power for us to sort of speak, you know, uh, something, you know, uh, uh, some person that's maybe demonically possessed for us to, you know, loose them by God's power. And I'm not saying that God doesn't move that way. Certainly he does. And he can free people from all manner of sin. But what this language is talking about, it's talking about the authority of really, Jesus is hearkening back to Old Testament language of rabbis that had the authority to allow or disallow certain behaviors as they interpreted the word of God. And so what this authority is, what these keys are to bind or to loose is the authority first of Peter, then transferred to the whole church a couple chapters later to be the authority for us collectively. Listen to this. Don't miss this. Because if you're a Christian and you're part of a local church, this is an authority that you have that you must humbly, before God, humbly exercise. He's saying that we collectively as a church have the keys to interpret the Bible, of course with the Holy Spirit's help, and to say to people who seem to be walking contrary to Scripture, that behavior is out of line with Scripture, and we are locking the door. We are buying, we are saying, no, you are deceiving yourself, and you are not walking in accordance with the gospel that you confess, and you seem to not be a Christian. And then Jesus says that the local church has the authority, in fact, the responsibility to live together in that way, and when somebody won't repent, to actually put them out of the church. Now, friends, I realize this is completely foreign to most American Christians. We're like, what? And you know why it's foreign? Because this is a hard text to preach, and many of us just grew up on little puppy dogs and dandelions and lollipop stuff, right? Just kind of inspirational mojo to get you through a Tuesday rather than working your way through the Word of God. But friends, this is, this is in the Bible. What does it mean? It means that a local church, that collectively we together are not just supposed to come here like a gas station and fill up Sunday after Sunday and not really be involved with each other. Friends, this is calling for a sort of radical commitment to one another so that we live together in a way that if one of us were to walk away from God, collectively the church, the church is the word Jesus has used. The whole assembly has this responsibility not to be judgmental jerks, but to care in brokenhearted boldness for one another so that we collectively would plead with this brother, don't, like, don't shipwreck your soul. And if you do this, you're going to force us into this position where we collectively have to maybe say to you, you are not trusting in Christ. And we're putting you out of the church. Now, 
We could go and we could read 1 Corinthians 5, and maybe we will in just a moment if we have time, where the purpose, we see another situation where, where the church is admonished by Paul to put this man, in 1 Corinthians 5, this man is having this illicit, immoral relationship with his father's wife, right? So I guess it's his stepmom. And everybody's okay with it. And Paul is saying, how can you let this go on in the church? Don't you see this is sullying the witness of the church? It's, it's besmirching the name of Christ. And he's saying, put this guy out. And then Paul uses this language which is so severe, which just shocks our little weak, little fragile American minds. He says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on that day. So notice the goal that the church should live together in this broken-hearted, bold, gracious, yet fierce way that we take sin so seriously that if somebody is living in hypocrisy, gross hypocrisy to the gospel, we care enough about them to be severe with them and discipline them and punish them, maybe to the extent of putting them out of the church. Why? So that we can be rid of sinners because we don't like sinners here in this church? No, friends. In the hope that when that person is put out of the covenant community, they, it would be like ammonia or a smelling salt for, a, for like a boxer that's been hit in the face by sin so much that maybe by being put out, by being treated so severely and graciously by the church and then being put out into the world, God would use the severity of that love that severe mercy to be like ammonia underneath their spiritual nostrils so that they'll wake up and say, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I've got all these people who I've done life with, who I've walked with for these past years, and now they all collectively are saying to me, you are in trouble. Friends, God will use that as ammonia, as a smelling salt to wake us from our stupor. And friends, that is not harsh judgmentalism or fundamentalism, that is severe mercy and love. Do you see that? And friends, Jesus is saying, I want you to see this. I want you to see this. He's saying that we collectively as Christians have the responsibility to live together in this way. Ah, is that not countercultural to the American individualism, right? Yeah, let's just admit it. Admit it. This is jacking you up. I get it. I get it. Okay. I realize that. Admit it. I know. I wrestle with it too. This is contrary to the way we like to do life, isn't it? Just give me a north-south, okay? I just want to make sure that you guys are still alive out there. You, you, you're, all right. I, I, I see that. But friends, do you see this is the way the Bible is calling us to live? Why? Because the world needs to see the pure beauty of the diamond. The church doesn't exist for us and just the little stuff that we like to do. It exists to display the beauty of the gospel. And Jesus calls us to live together in this sort of gracious, humble, bold sort of way to make Jesus clearer to an onlooking world. So three implications. Quickly. As to these, well, I make no promises. Scratch that word quickly. Three implications of these truths. One, I think Christians clearly should be members of a local church. 
I mean, you, you will not find the words join a local church in the Bible. But the idea, friends, is woven throughout the whole New Testament. If, which seems to be clear in Matthew chapter 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, which are talking about putting out an unrepentant, egregious sinner who will not repent, to put them out of the church and treat them as a Gentile tax collector, Lord willing, so that they might wake up and come back and repent. If there's something to be put out of, friends, it follows that there's something to be put into. Does that make sense? And so how else can we live this out unless we acknowledge the fact that there's something more tangible, an expression of the grand universal body of Christ that finds its expression in the local church. And this local church is a group of people who have committed to live together, to submit their lives to one another, and two particular leaders who they trust to teach the word of God rightly to them. In fact, Hebrews chapter 13 Verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are those who are keeping watch over your soul as those who have to give an account. I think that verse is talking about the pastors and elders of a local church. And I don't highlight that because I think, boys and girls, you need to submit to me. I want you to see the great responsibility and just the implicit uh, truth there that I think Christians should be members together of a local church, whatever that looks like in that particular cultural context. Because how do you know who your leaders are? Who are your leaders? Are they every Christian pastor in this city? And who are we as the pastors and elders of Cross Point responsible for? When does that happen? When you've come for two months or three months or six months? You know, when, when, does, that, when does that relationship take place? We, ha- we call it in our culture just It's just semantics, but we call it church membership. And how you become a member of a church like Crosspoint is we have a membership class where we explain the gospel. We explain what we believe about the Bible. We explain what we think what it means to be a member and what the responsibilities of a member are. We explain what the leaders of the church are and who they are and their roles and their responsibilities. And we explain how we are trying to engage a lost city and world with the gospel. And then for people that want to be members after they go through that class, we ask them to meet with pastors or elders of the church to just hear their story, uh, hear how they came to Christ, hear their explanation of the gospel, not to be a theological test, but we want to make sure that people truly understand the gospel because the church is not made up of people who just attend a physical gathering, but the true church is people who are trusting in Christ, right? The church The church is made up of people who are believing and trusting in Jesus. And churches that just let people join by raising a hand or filling out a card may be, I fear, unwittingly giving those people false assurance that they're right with the Lord just because they filled out a card or walked an aisle or raised a hand. Friends, that is spiritual malpractice. You need to know whether or not you're understanding the gospel rightly and what your commitments are and what our responsibilities collectively are. And we think we call that in our culture church membership, whatever it's called in other cultures across the centuries. I think that it is clear that members of a local church, Christians should have this sort of understanding that they are responsible 
before another group of Christians. And they are more responsible to live out these commands of Scripture with this group of people who they've given themselves to than they are just to Christians on the other side of the earth. Does that make sense? So Christians should, I think, be connected and committed to one another in this way as members of a local church. Secondly, members of a church are to be committed to one another's sanctification. We've been talking about this. Do you see that none of this works? Like, how can we live this stuff out if we don't really know each other and if we're just sort of Sunday morning folks that come a little late and leave a little early and don't know anybody? This is impossible to do. The way most Americans live their Christian life, this makes living out this passage impossible. And part of the reason I think we need to look at that is to continually look at this text is to push against that sort of consumeristic individualism individualism that grips our culture. How are we to live this out, to be committed to one another's sanctification. And friends, when we started this church 10 years ago and it was just a few of us, that was easy to do. But now that there's five, six, seven hundred of us, that is harder to do. And it calls for us to be just more committed to it. And it calls for humble, bold, gracious love for one another. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German martyr, pastor, that went back to his, he had a just a cush job as a seminary professor in America in the 1930s. Went back to Germany uh, to, because he heard that the Third Reich, he knew that the kind of the storm clouds on the horizon, and he went back to his native Germany to develop an underground church to try and really stay the tide of just the, the evil of, of Nazism. And he eventually uh, was thrown in prison, and I think two or three weeks before the end of World War II was hanged for his, his faith in a German prison. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes, has this quote. He says about this life together, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns, that word consigns, that leaves somebody to, than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. It is a ministry of mercy. And Bonhoeffer says that I think what he's saying is he's agreeing with the scriptures that Christians in a local church should live together in this name. Now, friends, none of us, I don't think, intend to leave our brothers and sisters in this church consigned to their sin. But listen to me. That is effectively and functionally what we do, even if it's by omission, when we do not press on ourselves to pursue a type of biblical community that lives out these truths and imperatives. It's full of grace and truth when we don't pursue this type of life together as a church community. Now, a word about community. Last week I talked about the different generations, and um, I'm just going to wade back in that little pool there and uh, maybe get some uh, feedback on this one. I don't know. A word about community to the generations, younger people. I think that younger people tend to be satisfied with just sort of authenticity. You know, hashtag keeping it real, right? As if keeping it real is what will redeem you. It doesn't. Merely keeping it real or being authentic doesn't necessarily do anything 
unless you're with a group of people who won't let you stay like you are, but care enough about you to move you along closer to Christ, right? We say this often. Crosspoint, we desire, is a place that where it is okay to not be okay, right? I mean, we've all walked into churches and you just know that, oh my gosh, I gotta act like I got it all together, you know. This is a place where it's okay not to be okay, I pray. But having said that, this can't be a place where it's okay to not be okay and stay that way, right? We have to apply this gracious care for one another. And what holds us back, what holds back, I think, often a younger generation from this is a pervasive insecurity about their own sin and failings, which prevents us from confronting one another because we don't want to come across as a hypocrite, so we don't ever challenge one another, right? I mean, I mean, I'm just keeping it real. I mean, I, it's not up to me to judge and all this kind of stuff. No, friends, this, this text that we've read is saying that we, we do need to care for each other in this way. And we do need to have these hard conversations with each other, even though we got junk in our lives too. And do you see how actually self-absorbed and prideful it is when we don't have hard conversations with one another because, oh, you know, we, we've got stuff going on in our life too. I actually think that it is an incredible act of selflessness to push through that self-absorption and know that even though you're not perfect, even though you got stuff that needs to be pointed out by people too, that you care enough about a person to have a hard conversation and even feel the sting of your own hypocrisy and love them anyway through it. Does that make sense? I hope so. You guys are in shock right now. I can tell you like, oh my God. Do you see that? Younger generation, a younger generation, I think is just, is just hamstrung by this false, thin veneer of supposed accountability and, and authenticity. Older Christians, I think, tend to be shocked and uncomfortable with authenticity because you didn't grow up in the age of Facebook, right? Everybody kept their business to themselves, right? And everybody showed up in public kind of looking okay. Mom had her hair done. Ozzy and Harriet, Warden, Cleaver, whatever Mom Cleaver's name was, right? And I think older Christians tend to be shocked and uncomfortable with authenticity and therefore then unable or less able to engage and help. Instead, they bemoan how bad things have gotten and how younger people don't know their Bibles and don't like the same type of music or they don't dress properly or whatever or whatever. And all those things may be true. But solely pointing out and being aghast at symptoms does not help cure the disease. What the church needs, what this church needs, what every church needs is for older saints to stop being shocked and offended and cranky and to roll up their sleeves and wade into the mud pit and engage with immature and insecure younger Christians who desperately need instruction and care, not suspicion and disgust. So members of a local church are to be radically committed to one another's sanctification. And then thirdly, finally, the last implication of these truths is that the goal of all this, friends, is our good. It's the purity of the church, the display of the gospel. Do you see what's at stake here? 
right? Do you see how there's something so much bigger than going on than your personal cup being filled up when you are part of a church? Friends, I want you to see this. Like, this is so huge. What's going on here, what the goal is, is our personal good, the purity of the church, and the display of the gospel. So for the good of our own souls, I, I, I kind of paraphrase 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, put this man out of the church. He says, for his good, so that God, might dest- God would use the means of life outside of the covenant community as a means to destroy his flesh so that he will come back. And that's all of us together. It's not just a few people that are elders that are handling that. Paul is not writing to the elders in 1 Corinthians 5. He's not writing to the elders alone in Matthew 18. He's writing to the church, the ecclesia, the assembly, all of the Christians who are gathered together, submitting their lives together as a local church. And we're to live together in that way for our good. And then we're to live together for our collective sanctification and purity. In fact, Jesus desires to prepare his bride to wash her and to make her spotless, I think, through these means. So listen to this, Ephesians 5, verse 25 through 27, a beautiful passage about marriage, I think, but really even deeper than that, about gospel community together. So listen to Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 27. Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Friends, that's the gospel right there. Jesus gave himself up for you. He bore the punishment of your sin so that you might live. He died so that you might live. He bore the punishment so that you might go free. Husbands, love your wives in this way as Christ loved the church. Verse 26, listen to this. That he might sanctify her, meaning Jesus might sanctify her, the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she may be holy and without blemish. Get the picture here, friends. Jesus, the groom, is preparing his his bride for her wedding day, he is working towards her sanctification. He's washing her. That's what the Bible says Jesus is doing to his church. How does he do that? By having us go off into our own little corners and having our little private time devotions? Well, partly, but also, friends, through our life together, through hard conversations, through us confronting sin, through us having responsibility. Jesus intends to beautify his bride through the way they live together and take responsibility for each other. Do you see that? And then finally, as part of this last point here, the display of the gospel. The goal is the display of the gospel, friends. Listen to this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 17. This is a beautiful text. I think about this all the time. I just think about Jesus. Like, what type of smell is my life giving off? And what type of smell or aroma is Crosspoint giving off? And this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved 
and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. What is Paul saying? He's saying that our life together, by the way we handle sin and offense within the church, by the way we deal with that, by the way we live in such a a radical commitment to one another, that that in itself should be a kind of aroma. And do you see that what's going on here is it's not because we think that we'll get to a place in this life before Jesus comes where we're completely pure, where we will have no sin. No, friends, the healthier church is, the healthier it is, the more broken people God will send to it. So the church will always, always be dealing with this. Always, always. Even if all the people that are in this room just got to this place of really just really great sanctification, well, God would send a whole bunch of broken people so that we can care for them, right? So the church is always jacked up. And so the aroma isn't that we all got our lives together. The aroma, the thing that becomes beautiful to an onlooking world is how this broken group of people loves one another, cares for one another, cares for each other, is radically committed to one another. And friends, that becomes the beautiful aroma to an onlooking world. Not the fact that we eventually get to a point where we all have it together because we won't. Friends, that's called death and glorification. That's what that is. We will never get to that state this side of eternity. But Jesus calls us to live together in this way so that the world gets a picture of what is true grace, true love, true true beauty, true supremacy. And they get a picture of a loving, gracious God who alone can satisfy. And God intends that the very way we live together as a local church to be a display and aroma of that very thing. Friends, I I ask us, are are we living that way together? I end with this three quick practical ways to pursue this. One, if you're a Christian, join a local church. Whether it's Crosspoint, don't don't think that I'm trying to, do not, man, don't think that I'm just trying to get more people to join this church. But if you're a Christian, you need, to, you need to commit yourself to a Bible-believing church. You need to be known by people. You need elders and pastors to know who you are. You need people to have authority over your life. If you drift, somebody needs to notice it. Join a local church. I, I, I'd love it for the, to be this one. If we do something or I get on your nerves, like I understand. I'm, I can be hard. I get that. I, I, I'm, I'm an acquired taste. I get that. <laughs> Don't get too excited, Trevor. So maybe some other church is better for you. Praise God. Go there. Go there. Don't be like a lot of Christians in Columbus and just hop around from place to place to place with your arms folded. That place doesn't do it right. That place, no place does it right because we're jacked up. We're on this side of eternity. We don't do it right. You don't do it right. We're jacked up. This church is jacked up. I know that. I started this church and everything that's jacked up about this church, I feel it. And it breaks my heart when people just float around. It's terrible for your soul. You can't live these verses out. Can you? That got intense. I'm sorry. Smile again. (laughs) Two, 
as you join a local church, maybe cross point after that, maybe not, I don't know. <laughs> Prioritize corporate worship and gathering together with your church family. If you're the type of person that just comes every now and again and you have all this other stuff that takes precedence, and friends, again, don't hear my heart. Now, I'm not, this is not the pastor saying, you know, take an attendance. You need to, it's not, this is not like legalism. It's because these verses are impossible to do. This type of life is impossible to do unless we prioritize life together, right? And we need to do that. We need to prioritize not only gathering together weekly, but gathering together as a church family outside of this room through, through community groups, through our midweek fellowships that we do periodically, through Sunday morning classes, through one another meetings. Friends, one another meetings is the way. We do those six times a year. And if we ever had to excommunicate a person because of unrepentant sin, we wouldn't do it on a Sunday morning when we have a whole bunch of people in this room who don't know the situation, who might not be believers. We would do that through our member meetings that we call one another meetings. But the problem is, as many of you that are members of the church never come to those things. And so how can we live out this verse when you don't show up, right? How can we be radically committed to that? I beg you, I urge you to just prioritize gathering together and then just all all sorts of intangible things, man. Come early, leave late. Have your head on a swivel. Switch up and sit in different places. Look at somebody that just looks like they're outside of your demographic and prefer them and unprefer yourself in your comfort. I just made up a word. Unprefer yourself and go to that person and just get to know them. And how are you? Can I serve you? Take a member directory. Just strive to know members in the church. We, we have made, these are shoddy. There's nothing. It's nothing fancy. It's kind of like everything at Crosspoint. It's just a little... You know, it's just a little humble, right? It's just a printed out member directory where we've got pictures of most of the members. Hopefully, eventually we'll get all of them. Robert prints these things out. Take, take a, every day as part of your Bible reading, just look at a page of the membership directory, look at the face, and pray for that person, and just get to know people, right? And don't be dependent on, on the church to organize all these efforts. Just strive, strive to know other members. Get a member directory if you're a member. If you don't have one of these, email Robert, and he will get you one. And let's live in this way where we collectively care for one another. And friends, listen to me. I end with this. Do not, especially if you're a visitor. Do not hear me saying that the only thing I care about is just the people that are members of this church. No. In fact, just the opposite. I think that the best way we can care for you and a world that looks at us is by living together in this way so that we become a more beautiful display of Jesus. Because friends, here's what Jesus does. When we live together in this way, right, our backs are not to the world sort of, you know, angry and sort of isolating ourselves. But when a church lives together, you know what they're doing? They're reaching out, they're saying, they're like a beautiful witness to the world. And the Holy Spirit, through the way we live together, is saying to an unlooking world, come on, like, come on, come on, don't you want to live this way? It's so much better. It's so much more satisfying. Like, 
come on and be part of this redeemed, merry band of reconciled sinners who are marching forward to that day when sin will be vanquished, right? And there will be no more need for conversations like this. And every bit of thing that is out of line will be made straight. And we will enjoy forever and ever the beauty and the surpassing worth of Jesus who alone can satisfy, friends. And we are like linking arms together as broken, jacked up, redeemed sinners marching towards that day when we finally and fully are free from the sin and free to love Jesus completely forever and ever and ever in ever-increasing joy. Friends, let's, let's be like, let's, let's be that type of church. Like, let's, let's do it. We can do it. It's, it's there for the taking. We can do it. it it's, it's there for us in the coming decades. And I pray, I, I pray that God would, would be so kind as, as to let me give the remaining decades of my life to this local church, to fighting, rolling up my sleeves, desiring, doing whatever it takes to, to serve and live together with this group of people for that type of display, for the joy of our souls, for the display of the gospel in the glory of God. God, would you, would you be so kind as, as to let me do that and to let these people do that? Would you, would you make us that type of church, God? Would you do that? <laughs> uh, musicians, come on up. I'm falling apart. Jeez. Lord, help us. Help us. Humble us. Jesus, humble us. Lord, we can't do this on our own. We're too insecure. We're too anxious. We're too self-absorbed. All these things that we've talked about today will not be acquired by grit and grind and effort alone, although we're called to that. We need you, Lord. We need you to help us. For the Christians in this room, for the members of this church, that give us a hunger for this. And we could spend a whole other Sunday talking about deficiencies and even my leadership on how we could be facilitating all of these things so much better. I'm aware of that, God, and I repent of all those things. But this little dusty band of people called Crosspoint, may we hunger for this type of life together. And for my friends that are in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, would you make him so real and so beautiful would you melt their hearts? Would you make the supremacy and the beauty of Jesus irresistible? Would you break down their defenses? And would you ravage their heart with love and grace and kindness and satisfaction so that they would turn from counterfeit joys, counterfeit idols, counterfeit gods, 
and they would run headlong into Jesus who alone can forgive and satisfy. Lord, would you do that? As we respond in song or for those of us that are Christians, respond in taking communion and receiving the bread and the juice, we see the beauty of your son and would it transform us one degree so that we'd be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.